The Viewpoint, weekdays, 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. on SAFM. Good evening, Professor Carolina Paul Albertain, Research Chair in Pathogenic Yeast. That's in the Department of Microbial Biochemical and Food Biotechnology at COFSIS. Is that right? Yes. Good evening, Sangeja. Thank you, ma'am. Please tell us about, first of all, your position. You are the research chair. Just tell us more about what it is that you do and what research you look into for the purposes of just locating the balance of this conversation. All right. So um, I am an NRF, Saatchi Research Chairholder, as you said, in pathogenic yeast. So that means yeast that can cause disease. That's all that pathogenic means. So um, the research that we do or the mandate that the research chair has is then to um, do postgraduate research and to um, have postgraduate students that I supervise as part of the group um, that then study various aspects of pathogenic yeast. That sounds very complicated. Say more, please. <laughs> I will try to, to simplify it. Um, it's basically, so as I said, the yeast that can cause diseases, so various types of infections in people. Um, and there are certain groups of yeast that we then look at to see basically what is it that makes them pathogenic. So their virulence factors, how do they cause disease? And then one of the big focuses is to try and find novel cures for these um, infections. How are these infections and the diseases that result from these infections and the mortality that results, all of that, affect South Africa's quadruple burden of disease? Exactly just some Mm. conversation just to understand what sort of, let me call pandemic, if you like, that we as a nation are dealing with and which for the most part remains a silent killer, unreported, seldom spoken about. Okay, so um, we are all aware of things like tuberculosis and HIV, um, and then now COVID-19, and all these, they call them sin pandemics. So it's all these pandemics that are happening at the same time. And especially in sub-Saharan Africa, we have a big problem, as as is known, with, with things like HIV and tuberculosis. But the, the other pandemic that's sort of at the, at the background of all of these diseases is the fungal infections. And the reason for that is because most of the patients that have these um, HIV infections and tuberculosis and so on, their immune systems are compromised. So um, that means that they are very susceptible to all kinds of other infections, including fungal infections. And worldwide, more than a billion people every year are affected by fungi, either in the form of a superficial infection, like a skin infection, or in worst-case scenarios, it can cause a systemic infection. So it infects other parts, organs of the body. Um, one of the main causes of people that die from HIV or from AIDS is actually a fungus that attacks the brain. Um, so these fungal infections are a major cause of disease in the human population. And in South Africa, it's estimated that around 3 million people each year are affected by these fungal infections. 
So we're clearly talking about an environment that has a lot of bacteria around us, which we scarcely pay the kind of attention that clearly on the numbers that you've just thrown around, we should. So when we're talking about infections, fungi in particular, where is where are these spaces that are contaminated? Where in our bodies or how in our bodies do we get a sense that something is manifest here and should be taken seriously? Okay, so, so the question is, where do we get the fungi in the first place? So fungi are all around us in the environment. So the one that I mentioned that can cause um, brain infection or meningitis in HIV patients especially, it's something that we breathe in. It's associated with bird um, feces and trees and the environment in general. So we breathe the spores in, we inhale it, and then it can go from the lungs to the bloodstream and it is very attracted to the nervous system. And so it goes into the brain where it can cause fatal disease. Other fungi that, that we study or some of the other yeasts that we study are actually part of all the normal cells that we carry with us every day. So the microbiome, um, it's, a, it's a member of the gut microbiome, so in your gastrointestinal tract. And there it lives mm-hmm. happily. It doesn't cause any problems. But as soon as your immune system is under pressure... Or, for instance, if you're taking a lot of antibiotics and you're disturbing that natural ecosystem that is in your intestines, then the yeast can start overgrowing. And the same thing, it can go into your bloodstream from there and infect basically any organ in your body. I mean, just before people start to panic uh, in terms of the question that I asked, (laughs) fungi is not always necessarily a bad thing. I mean, these are important components of every terrestrial ecosystem as decomposers, food sources, you've said pathogens or mutualists. Exactly then, what should we be be careful of? Because fungi is, is an important element of biology, of who we are in terms of fighting some diseases or conditions on our behalf long before we even recognize them. And at the same time, if we turn a blind eye for long enough, they can start to harm us. The critical line for human beings and the survival with the bacteria stroke fungi around it. Mm. No, what you're saying is very true. I mean, if we think about fungi, um, we think about food in the form of mushrooms, even um, chocolate, my favorite food, it wouldn't be here if it wasn't for, for some fungus that, that helps with, with the production of it. So there's a lot of benefits to fungi. And in fact, in, in the medical field, if it weren't for a fungus called penicillium, we wouldn't have antibiotics. So um, it, it is a, they are the good guys. It is only once your immune system is compromised that these um, fungi then have the ability to, to cause disease. This is quite easily the most scientific conversation I've had in my close to a year and a half on The Viewpoint. For those who are listening, I'm in conversation with Professor Carolina Paul Albertain, who is the Saatchi Research Chair. That is the Research Chair in Pathogenic Yeast at the Department of Microbial Biochemical and Food Biotechnology at the University of the Free State. Let me just try and capitalize on this word food biotechnology. Food in South Africa has come under the spotlight in recent times with uh, outbreaks, outbreaks at facilities or in the manufacturing of certain foods. And of course, we can talk about the listeriosis outbreak very recently in um, the Russians. Was it Enterprise? I think it was. I beg your pardon if I've got the wrong name, but I think it was Enterprise. (laughs) That is something that would 
absolutely keep you worried. And that is the kind of work that you make sure the effects, as we saw, never happen. So from a food biotechnology perspective, how do we ensure that what we are buying and the value chain in terms of what we pick from the shelf that goes into our stomachs is good for us? Okay, so from from that perspective, uh, the one thing that, that has to be absolutely in place in any food factory or preparation facility is good quality control. So you have to be sure that there's no contamination from any potential pathogens or from environmental strains that can be potentially pathogenic. And that goes for, for bacteria, it goes for fungi as well, although most fungi that are food spoilage organisms um, are not necessarily pathogenic. Um, but that being said, obviously, if, if your immune system is compromised enough, there are certain environmental um, fungi that can also be pathogenic. So um, good quality control is essential. And then um, the, the consumer always has the right to, to question these things. And I think as a society, we tend to be too trusting maybe in terms of food, um, maybe not from a pathogenic perspective as well, but from what is actually in our food, especially once you're looking at processed foods and so on. Um, I think as a society, we need to, to be more questioning and um, the, the manufacturers need to be more open about what it is actually that's in food. I mean, on that point, I'm jotting down as you're speaking, these are the things that come to mind. The sell-by date versus the best before date, the RDA in our food, recommended daily allowance, the preservatives that are part of what we eat, which are scientific processes, if you like, for processed food in particular, mm -hmm. and storage, the conditions of storage. And when I say storage, not just at the facility where I will be consuming it or buying it from, but between manufacture, the transportation thereof, the time, the length of time, the condition in which it is transported, and then ultimately stored at the shop, and then onto the shelf, and then I buy it, and then I might take my time getting home because I've got a couple of ladies to see along the way or a couple of guys to mm -hmm. see along the way. What is happening to all this food? Because at times it might not contemplate all of this. Uh, yes, that's very true. Um, we have to take responsibility for, for all of those things. And if you think about foods that spoil easily, uh, maintaining things like the cold chain. So you cannot drive around with your yogurt for three hours in the boot and then think it's still going to be in the same condition that it was when you bought it at, at um, the store. So, so you need to be mindful of storing and, and keeping your food in, in the correct ways. Um, so, and that makes it difficult if you, if you use the example of uh, the listeria outbreak. Um, it's difficult for, for consumers to sue companies, for instance, if they, if they wanted to, because you have to prove that you didn't do anything untowards with the food yourself and that that might have caused the, the problems. Let's take a break. Professor Karina Paul Albertain returns after the break. Unattended fungal diseases, a silent killer. We're going to talk now about the presence, the presence of fungi and bacteria in our ecosystem that is cause for much concern. Many South Africans don't even know what we are talking about, just as I didn't know until I had to prepare for this lesson. So it's nothing to be ashamed about. Let's continue the conversation after the break, and please do participate. 0891-104-207. Please give us a call and let's have a chat. Babu Nonde, I'm counting on you. After the break.
tweet at SFM Radio and at Songezumabete. We're back. We are live. Professor Paul Arbutain is on the line with us. This is her title. It's very long. Saatchi Research Chair in Pathogenic Yeast at the Department of Microbial, Biochemical and Food Biotechnology. This is all taking place in Bloemfontein. Kofsis. Most common fungal diseases, the things that we should be aware of, fungal nail infections, I'm sure each and every single one have had, have had that ringworm, or just about every child has had that, is changuba in my language. Of course, candida, infections around the mouth, the throat, the esophagus, and even around the most intimate parts, both men and women, probably more though the ladies because of just the sensitivity of the female reproductive organ. Just have a conversation with the typical ness, if that's a word, of fungal diseases. Um, sorry, can you just repeat? Yeah, sorry. Um, I heard you talking about these mucosal infections and skin infections. And most of most of the infections that we're talking about is actually that. For women, they would get a yeast infection once or twice in their lives. All, all women basically suffer from that, as you mentioned. Um, some ladies are more unfortunate in that they have some genetic predisposition to having recurrent infections, and that can be extremely uncomfortable. And, and um, even from those um, surface type of infections, there is the possibility that it can spread to, as I said, the bloodstream and then cause more serious problems and even death eventually if, if your immune system is compromised. At what point between what is common that you will get by virtue of being alive and a human being to the point where now it's starting to get serious and it has a risk of taking your life? The human being will obviously see, I mean, for instance, a ringworm. It's the most common thing that I know. At what point should I start getting worried that it's going to be more than just a ringworm or it's going to be more than just the typical fungal nail infection? Okay, so, so normally the fungi that cause ringworm and nail infections, they are what we call dermatophytes. So they love the skin. Um, and they would normally stay on the skin. They do not have the ability to penetrate deeper. So in general, in terms of, of a serious infection, we're not looking at those. Um, we are more concerned with fungi and yeast that can actually go into the bloodstream. And there are quite a few of them that can, that can do that. Um, under, um, under, as I said, uh, if your immune system starts getting compromised or if there's some underlining, we've all heard the word comorbidities now. Um, yes. and, and I think we all understand that that means that you have an underlying disease of some nature. So people, for mm. instance, that are diabetic, people that are uh, in ICU on ventilators, uh, people that have cancer treatment, organ transplant patients, HIV-positive people, um, all of those people that have serious comorbidities um, are at higher risk of then getting a serious fungal infection. Um, so as soon as you have some way of the fungus actually penetrating through those upper layers, the mucosal membranes or the skin, and actually accessing your bloodstream, then you start running into serious problems. Well, producer is just carrying on from where we left off in relation to the fingernails and the fungi mm. that sort of collect there. Tree oil, tea tree oil in particular, mm -hmm. could this be a treatment? Can we talk about treatments for some of these common yeah, yeah. fungal bacterial challenges? <laughs> okay, so, so let me maybe start with a, with a um, 
uh, accepted treatment, if I can put it that way, so that, that the doctor would uh, prescribe to you. And the problem there is that we only have three classes of antifungal drugs. So like we have different classes of antibiotics for bacteria, we have a limited number of antifungal drugs that can be used. So what you would normally get for a nail infection or even for a, for a systemic infection, all those types of drugs belong to only three classes. And the, the problem is that if you have a, a drug that can kill a fungus very well, it will also have some side effects and, and bad consequences for humans. And the reason for that is because biochemically speaking, a fungus cell and a human cell are very similar. So it's not like a, a human cell versus a bacterium where you have lots of differences that you can target. Uh, for fungi, they are very similar to human cells. So anything that will kill a fungus will also harm a human to a certain extent. Um, so that's one of the, the problems that we have. So we have to try and find new alternative treatments. And there are a lot of groups that are looking at various ways, including looking at natural products, plant-based products, and tea tree oil. Mm -hmm. I'm a, personally a firm believer in tea tree oil for, for all kinds of minor ailments. I will not prescribe drinking it for a serious infection or anything like that. Um, yes. But if you have a, a, a skin irritation, so on, then um, under, under I, I would say that you have to have sort of the correct dosage of it. If you apply it neat to, to the skin, it might not be very comfortable. But, but there are various groups that are looking at all of these different um, alternative treatment options. Sure. Talking about treatment options, and I think you touched on it, and I really want you to zoom in. South Africa is home to many indigenous plant species, and we can even harness the type of fungi and bacteria that is good for us for the purposes of engineering, if you like, treatments. I'm thinking mm -hmm. out loud, for instance, I mean, my producer speaking of tea tree plants, Moringa, mm -hmm. Moringa plant is, is, yeah. is something good for us. Um, even aloe, 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 mm. aloe is good for the skin if you have a burn yeah. or something of that kind or if you've been stung by a bee. So it's not to suggest that nature hasn't provided what we need. It might just be a question of us as a human being species now harnessing all of that mm. and creating something that works and that works for South Africans here in South Africa without always necessarily spending so much money in importing drugs or developing drugs that are consistent with, if you like, the institutions that have been set up outside the continent. Mm. No, I agree with you. And as I said, there are, there are various research groups that are looking at using um, our indigenous plants and the indigenous knowledge of, of um, South Africa to try and find treatment options for various infections and, and um, diseases, including fungal infections. Some of the things that, that hamper that process, though, is that often... The plant, if you, if you extract the, the chemicals from the plant that you would like to use, the effect that you see might be due to a mixture of those chemicals. And it's sometimes very difficult to identify which chemical or which combination of chemicals is actually responsible for the activity that you see. Um, and and Western-based medicine likes us to have a compound and an activity linked to a specific compound. Whether that is a, um, a valid proposal for, for all kinds of, of knowledge systems is, is debatable. Um, but 
that is the, 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 the Western perspective of it. And, I, and I, I do agree that we need to look at, at African perspectives as well, because a lot of this knowledge has been with us for, for many, many hundreds of years. No, and, absolutely, and, and you're right. A, a lot of the a lot of the the compounds that are, are today are produced and sold and um, for for various treatments are actually originally from plants. Absolutely, so that's a, a valid proposal. Saying that it will be cheaper maybe is is not always the case because to go from a, a raw plant extract eventually to a product that you can use, you still have to go through all the steps of clinical trials and, and, and to get to a, a product eventually on the shelf. So um, sure. that process can be quite costly regardless of what your original source of the compound was. I'll leave it there for now because I would love to engage one of our listeners in Kruenstadt. I've never had a caller from Kruenstadt before in as much as I've never had to pronounce this name and I hope I get it right. Mona Silo. Mona Silo, is that the name? Is that correct? Good evening. Yes, good evening, sir. Indeed, sir. Thanks. Your thoughts, please. Yes, yes, sir. I would like to ask your uh, panelist. Uh, if a person is suffering from meningitis, it is inflammation of the meningeal caucus. I want to know, uh, we, we do what we call a sternum puncture and a lumbar puncture to draw the cerebral fluid to go <clears throat> and, and see whether he is a meningitis or what. But then in the east, they use octopuncture. Now, the, 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 the million dollar question is, how do they use uh, octopuncture, that is needles, needles, in, 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 in the east? to cure meningitis or meningococcus when we have to do a procedure where we do a sternum puncture and a lumbar puncture and take it to the laboratory before we can even uh, diagnose the patient that he is. I've got uh, you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mona. I think the differences in protocols to achieve the same result, in other words, knowing whether or not it would be typically viral meningitis or bacterial meningitis, and I'll have you know, I've had a lumbar punch. It is bloody sore. Thoughts, Doc? <laughs> okay, so, <clears throat> sorry. So, you correct. To, to diagnose which organism is causing the meningitis, we often do, or not we, but it is done, uh, a lumbar puncture, and then the the fluid that is extracted is cultured in a lab to see whether it's a bacterial meningitis, a viral meningitis, or even a fungal meningitis. As I said, this fungus that causes meningitis in HIV-positive patients can also be diagnosed using um, the lumbar puncture. Um, if I understood the caller correctly, he was asking about the use of acupuncture as a treatment option. Now, Absolutely. In other I, words, why yeah. would such different treatment protocols follow typically the same examination in terms of trying to understand meningitis? Yeah, to, to, to diagnose meningitis, you do a lumbar puncture. So acupuncture is something completely different and is generally not used as a treatment option for any infection that I know of. 
um, that is part of more physiotherapy to, to work on muscles and nerves and things like that. So acupuncture per se is not a treatment option for uh, a viral, bacterial or fungal infection. I'm going to ask this question going back to other diseases and health problems caused by fungi. And uh, this has a typical South African flavor or African flavor for that matter. And that's mycetoma, for instance, caused by bacteria and fungi found in soil and water. We're a water scarce country and many of our water sources are shared for washing laundry, for livestock, for drinking and for agriculture. Do we have a problem with mycetoma, generally speaking, and how could we better, I suppose the question is, how can we better manage our environment so that we don't run these risks of mycetoma taking over us? Okay. So, so mycetoma is, a, is a, one of the most serious um, superficial infections. It starts off also as a skin infection and then can spread a bit deeper. Um, in South Africa, it's not one of the major infections that we see. But in other parts of Africa, it, it is a quite a, a disfiguring disease. Um, it, it causes um, physical disfigurement and so on. That is obviously there's some social stigma surrounding it and so on as well. Um, in general, the same rules apply to, to water contaminated by fungi than water contaminated by, by bacteria or, or viruses or anything of that nature. The better your water treatment facilities are, and the more people have access to clean, um, well-treated water, the better. Mm, mm, um, mm. Obviously, we know the situation for many of, of even our, our fellow South Africans and then in the rest of Africa is that that is not always the case. Um, so, Fantastic. So these, yeah, these pathogens are present in water and um, can, can cause problems. Thankfully, our water retention capacity, for the most part, certainly in comparison to the continent, is better than most. That's, of course, not a reason for us to at all be complacent. Thank you so much, then, Professor yeah. Carolina Paul Albertain, Saatchi Research Chair in Pathogenic Yeast at the Department of Microbial, Biochemical and Food Te Biotechnology at COFSIS. Ladies and gentlemen, that then was the show. Thank you as well to one of our loyal listeners, a very senior among us in every respect. The debate about fungi and demotophytes is so engaging. My family must be wondering why I'm still in the garage in the car. I am listening to your show. He signs off by saying, Quack, quack, my dot. To me, son, Sabeza, SC, Malume. It's time for the book reading. <laughs> 